Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as To whom do justifications matter? Will we ever see more of this mysterious heiress? And how big of a shame is it that we'll probably never hear more about Dread Emperor Tenebris? I don't know. I like all these one-off references to inconsequential side characters. All lessons worth learning are drenched in blood. Dread Empress Triumphant. First, and only of her name. Well, that is a, an important epigraph since it is the first appearance of a very special someone. Uh, we'll get a few more here and there sprinkled throughout the story, but it leads us into a what I would say a, a pretty interesting transition chapter. Um, it's it's Cat and Black and the rest of the crew heading east and taking a quick pit stop on. The Blessed Isle, which we'll discuss a fair bit, I'm sure, about what that actually is. Um, but they arrive. Cat is giving Black the cold shoulder for most of this. She's very upset at him. And then Cat meets up with and has quite a long discussion filled with threats and promises and oaths of vengeance and normal things like that with Eris. Um, and at the conclusion of this, Cat starts to work her way back into the fullness of her new power. Her name is satisfied with how she handles the encounter, I suppose. And she starts 
mending the relationship with Black. All in all, it's a, a great chapter that all takes place in one very small location and over the course of a very condensed amount of time. Well, that sounds very exciting. I, for one, am excited to hear about this Blessed Isle. It sounds beautiful. Let's kick it off. It starts with a bit of a travel narrative. They head towards the city. Cat doesn't really participate in her training. She's just focusing on death. She spends a lot of the early parts of this chapter dwelling on the hangings and her part in them and doing something that is weird coming from Cat. Well, not weird. Feels like it should be weird given the things Cat says, but in actuality is pretty par for the course for her. She's justifying her position and condemning others. She even says a line that is very funny to read, having finished the story already, of course. She says, I'd killed for justice when no one else was willing to give it. She's, like you said, dwelling on death, but the the appeal to justice here is interesting. It's not really something that Kat claims to care about much later on. And also, this is such an aimless, ephemeral concept that she's aiming for here, this justice. It's Especially with Kat, I feel as though anytime she is aiming for justice and trying to be just about things, it's really practicality-based stand than a principled one. And here, it seems as though she's trying to take a, a principled position, and it just, it reads oddly. It absolutely does. And yet, let's look at this list. I'd killed for justice when no one else was willing to give it. That is chapter one knife the rapist i'd killed in battle when my enemies left me no other choice okay that just happened and then she laments the prisoner's deaths but killing the rapists when no one else was willing to do anything about it while her wording is unusual for catherine the if i may justification of it is something she does carry with her when no one else was willing to give it she says Justice when no one else was willing to give it. She embraces a self-imposed and self-imagined burden to do that which must be done. And though she moves from moral necessity to practical necessity, that's not a shift from her operation under the imperative of that which must be done. Throughout the entirety of the series, I think, Catherine so frequently finds herself pinned down and trying to negotiate around that which must be done rather than what she wants or what is considered right or what is commanded. It's what must be done. She just finds out justice isn't necessarily part of it. That's a practical girl. I, it's not surprising given the title of the work, but that is who a she is. A practical girl who is evil. Exactly. But while that is the overarching thesis of the work, we can't forget the other themes present in the work. The embrace of tropes that make this a unique piece. And as Catherine contemplates what has happened to her, not just what has happened on behalf of her, she reminds us of how important those moments are of playing into the trope. Uh, she says, my hands still shook when I thought of how close I'd come to dying that night, slowly bleeding out on the floor as the hero walked away. If he'd been even a little more thorough, just a little less sure my wound would kill me. Ellipsis. Catherine isn't the name lore lord she will become. But even here, she's recognizing the dots, which later she will invariably 
well connect. I laud her. Absolutely. Yes. And she's at the very beginning of her training with Black. And I think something that uh, to add to our growing list of let's pay attention to this, which frankly is sort of the whole purpose of this podcast, I think. But one thing that I think might, might be good to add to that list is noting which heroes specifically fall for tropes like that the hardest. William here has no heroic mentor. He hasn't, as far as we're aware, been in conflict with any villains directly, aside from now Cat. So he doesn't know the pitfalls to watch out for. As we go, I think it'll be good to pay attention to the heroes who are smarter about, who are more educated, who had mentorship from the Grillgrim, for instance, or who survived an encounter with the Calamities and that, that sort of thing, because I have a feeling we might see some trends develop from that. And it will be interesting to compare that with their relative successes or even their relative ability. I don't know where he would land on this scale, but for example, our Mirror Knight, Kristoff, is the greatest battering ram on the continent. Head empty. I really can't say heart full, just head empty. But you gotta admit, he gets things done. Is that because he's well-directed, or is he himself paying attention? Let's watch. I mean, I stand by the Mirror Knight being incredibly powerful because a lot of the rules got relaxed, and we can discuss that when it comes up, but he's he's playing with cheat codes. Like Catherine, who is who is freshly recovering from death after her first excursion, all of 12 years old, give or take, who looks back on her conversation with the only hero she's ever encountered, who asked her, how can you possibly justify working for these tyrants? And her recollection of how the events go is, quote, I'd dismissed him as yet another heroic imbecile. She is such a teenager. Why does she think she knows anything? Just yet another heroic imbecile. Like they all are, probably. I talked to one once, you know. So I'm basically an expert. I'm I'm thinking, is she, is the another meaning she's referring to at least one other is she thinking of the quote unquote good twin in her name dream because that's the closest thing she encounters to a hero before william catches either that or this is very much the case of daddy said a phrase that i liked and i'm gonna keep it black said something about heroes being dumb and cat just decided oh that's truth and i'm gonna repeat it to sound smart and tough she does recognize some of his arguments for the well as she puts it platitudes they are just platitudes about kingdoms and banners the kind of sentimental logic someone with no solid reasoning would use but i don't think we've yet really seen cat do better she's just come from she's just come to a different conclusion from the same process she's Callowin. kingdoms and banners are fundamental until the end for her sure but in the moment her argument with william is one where he is saying, how could you be disloyal to the, the country that birthed you? And Callowin's all stand together. And she's saying, you can't do a rebellion against Prace. You will die. Your plan is to do this. This plan is a bad plan. She's arguing about the practicalities while he's arguing about the sentimentality. So she does have a rhetorical leg to stand on in this complaint, I would say. I don't disagree. But I would like to rub it in both your face and the audience's, and Catherine's if she's listening, how many qualifications you had to put on that. About three. But only three. Which, as I say, it's a Callowin one. They do say that, I think. 
uh, as she's playing this back through her mind, she says there's something at play here that she doesn't understand. She still couldn't feel her name, all of that, all of this name-related stuff that happens following her kicking William over the edge of the wall instead of killing him. And she's she's claiming she doesn't know what's going on, but I feel as though Black pretty explicitly told her last chapter. And all, from where we're sitting, it's very easy to say it's the narrative nudging you towards picking your name back up. It's the narrative telling you you did the wrong thing. And Black basically told her that, and I'm not sure which aspect of that cat is missing, which part of this she's confused by. Uh, I feel like she has all the information she needs pretty much directly. Yeah. But she's not listening to Black right now. Okay, that's a fair point. Honestly, she she's in one of the stages of grief. Denial, perhaps? She's not far along. Denial and anger. She's somewhere between there. She does say, just the sight of the man, Black, was enough to fill me with cold anger. Some kind of combination of denial and anger. So danger. Ooh, cats in danger. As we will see later in this chapter. I enjoy how much she mourns the name that she held for all of five minutes, though. I mean, I mean, yes, the name's a valuable thing. And yes, she was feeling pieces of it previously. But it's not so much that she lost access to her full name, but rather that she only had her full name for a moment. And speaking of that, I meant to mention this last episode and kind of slipped my mind. When Indrani rangers up at the end, there's a mention that no, you're never as powerful as you are when you first achieve your name. Pat doesn't really use that for anything except surviving. I, it is very, very funny to me that Kat's big moment of power is just simply not not dying. And then that's something that she kind of falls back on, oh, I don't know, five or six times throughout the story. It, it It's very much a uh, core that's part of her... Yeah, right. It's very much a, a core part of her identity, and it's established in the moment of her taking her mantle. I mean, is it really that different? Catherine pauses dying for a little bit. Indrani 1v1s something that is to a dragon as a dragon is to an ant. Basically the same thing. Yeah, that's true. Dragon god versus a big cut on chest. Basically the same thing. Nice job, Cat. Speaking of name. Catherine is resentful that Black overwrote or overspoke her agency. She says that he casually commandeered my own body wasn't something I ever intended to forget. And no one held grudges quite like Calwin's. True. I find it interesting to read this with our later knowledge of the name she gained. She resents that someone commandeered her body, that someone used their name to control her. And she ends up in a position above all name. This obviously isn't a soul impetus or a catalyst even. It's an ingredient in a multi-book long arc towards Warden. But it's a piece. That's an interesting note for sure that I really hadn't drawn any connections. I like that. It's definitely that kind of thing that will be a line we can see. But this is a, a good one to note because it's so explicitly named commanding kind of named she does learn from a commander of name who himself is besties with the named person who can command all this doesn't spell anything out but there are alignment oh for sure I divine 
of it as he would from the stars. Following this, uh, Kat digs into her training in the form of just reading a lot of books, um, which she focuses on history. And we get a nice bit of exposition uh, about mostly the history of Prace, but uh, a little bit of just Eastern Polarnia in general. Um, we, so we get the a bit of discussion about the, the Mesons coming in. There's some history of the goblins, the orcs. Um, we get a discussion about goblin technological or at least metallurgical supremacy um that they were using iron weaponry when everyone else is using bronze and this got me thinking i wonder exactly what that process was here uh is there was there a bronze age collapse in calernia or were the goblins actually good enough to just sort of skip the need for such a catalyst and maybe they just went directly from bronze to steel or carbonized iron situation i, I could see it going either way but I just I appreciate the idea that Kalernia, in order to get the metallurgy they have now followed, you know, European history that directly, and there was a you know collapse of the continental economy that led to iron being important. Maybe having something to do with the the Mitsans falling apart or leaving more accurately. But this Bronze Age collapse took place after the vacation of the Meatsons rather than the arrival of the Sea People. It's the exit of the Sea People that instigates this time. Yeah, there you go. When they go back east for the uh, the term, the Lycerian Wars, they leave Colernia to its own devices and the goblins make steel. Sure. Are these timelines lining up? Who knows? I'm not a Colernian historian. And I'm not a Colernian literature scholar. This isn't. Colernians discuss erratic rata. I find it interesting that the massive stone bridge linking the island to the ground from both sides still stands unbroken as a testament to superior meats and engineering. I'm willing to believe, okay, these amazing engineers have a bridge that lasts forever. I've been on some old bridges, you know. They, they've got them in places. They usually end up actually shoring them up again. But even still, hey, Charles Bridge in Prague is pretty old. They've got other bridges that are older in other places. But no one has broken these bridges before? Even if they're of the most exquisite engineering, did it never seem prudent to break the link between the evil empire and the good kingdom? Even if they don't break easy, I think it's just rock. And you, you can break rocks even if they stuck together real good? I'm, I thought about that too, and I'm wondering if the situation is as simple as... The Precy don't destroy it because they're going to want to conquer everything. And destroying the link between themselves and the nearest kingdom means that conquest is more difficult. And the inverse is true. Callow doesn't want to destroy the bridge because that's their crusading path. It very well could be that it's a, a, a situation where neither side wants to destroy it because they're always thinking uh, as they're always thinking in terms of the coming campaign into the enemy lands so sure we're losing right now but what about when it's time for the counterattack? what when our heroes rise up and we push back the the tide and we can invade if we destroy the bridge we can't do that and pracy is prior to militia is not particularly famous for strategic planning they were bigger on just 
doing big magic. So for them, it was if we destroy the bridge, we can't do another invasion with our tapirs or whatever. And so good King Robert said, let us destroy the bridge that the Precy may never again darken our doorstep. But Farmer Brown said, nay, wait, them darn Precies still owe me for my piglet. And so King Robert donned his armor, sat astride his charger, and said, let's go get our rubies back. Really one of the classics in Calloway literature tradition. Maybe I am a Calernian literature scholar. What a way to find out. But at the center of this bridge is a fortress, or rather was a fortress. Uh, we had the Blessed Isle serving as a defensive point between uh, uh, for these bridges between the two lands. However, as part of the conquest, the successful one, the fortress was destroyed by what is described by Cat as the largest deployment of goblin fire in Precy history. And while we don't necessarily get a sense of scale for how often or how widely they used goblin fire, that still feels like that means that's a lot of goblin fire. And the fact that there's anything left on this rock, on this island, is astounding, frankly. But that was, depending on your measurement, a half generation or a generation back, whatever generation means to you. And they still haven't rebuilt anything. The Blessed Isle, this fortification, this historical fortification, which could still matter in the event of, I don't know, an organized Callowin rebellion led by a hero standing alone and not working with anybody. Please don't work with anybody. Your name tells you not to work with anybody. Don't do it. Might be a useful protection to have. Catherine herself says she isn't sure why the Empire had never bothered to rebuild and garrison the Blessed Isle. Why is it still just melted rock? As a guess, she says... Start again? Cat has a guess. She says a warning against defiance, maybe. But, and I think that's reasonable. Being your massive fortress that used to be home to your order of crusading paladins, the, the, the order of the white hand in absolute ruin, that's a... That's not great for the morale, I would say. It's hard to use it as a rallying point if it's destroyed. And there's also the fact that building a fortress is not a cheap undertaking to begin. And Prace is 20 years out from the end of the conquest, which means they're very, very early on in subjugating, pacifying Callow. I don't know. I, I can... I can easily see it being a situation where, one moment, where it's just not in the budget for Prace. And it may also just be the reverse of what we were discussing with the bridge itself. If you're always thinking offensively, then a garrisoned point, you're go a garrisoned point at the border is always going to be something that belongs to the enemy that you have to, it's an obstacle you have to deal with. So if Prace is thinking we need to be able to send troops across, knowing that a fortress is there that a small band could have and hold, that may be concerning. Whereas currently, if there's no fortress there, they don't have to waste military resources garrisoning a fort that's technically, by where they their borders are now, just sort of in the middle of their empire. I don't know. It. I imagine the main thing is the... Every Callowin that sees it is angry and grudge-filled, but also maybe a, a little discouraged at how destroyed it is. 
but I'm sure there's a lot of practical factors on top of that. Those are strong points. And I do often neglect to consider how honestly practical the Dread Empire can be. Speaking of what we hear here for the first time about Dread Emperor Tenebris, the spider empress, no further comment. He is convinced he's a giant spider, and then things go downhill, and it's not investigated any further right now. This brings me joy. Every mention of Tenebris is a highlight of this story, for sure. Tenebris, Irritant, and Traitorous are the three de- are the three Dread Emperors of whom I can never get enough. Fully agreed. So, they settle on this island for the time being. Catherine wanders off, like you do, exploring... The monument to death and misery, which again, honestly, that's something people do. I'm in no way suggesting she is doing something aberrant. What would you do on the Blessed Isle? But the thing is, she goes off without her sword. She encounters a beautiful Soninke woman, a strikingly beautiful Soninke girl, uh, who has a pleasant smile. Someone who I need to stress again is just so hot. And we get reminders of this throughout. She runs into Eris, and she reaches for a sword and finds herself without it. This is entirely her own fault. The fact that the story doesn't end here is miraculous. But let's investigate how it happens. It is definitely not Kat's best move. And she follows it up with another absurdly bad move. Her, the first thing she says to Eris is, Didn't think you'd be inclined to talk after what you did in Summerhome. She realizes she has no weapon, and the first thing she does is say, Hey, remember last time when you tried to kill me? Cat, maybe don't bring up memories of the person you're talking to trying to kill you when you have no defense against them presently. I don't know. It's it's definitely a very cat move, and I appreciate that. But it's also a very cat move, and I hate it. Cat is very much aware of the phrase about poking a bear, but... She takes it as survival advice. One ought to poke the bear. You know, you punch a shark in the nose, you poke the bear. That's all she's doing here. There's something delightful I didn't mark in my notes, but that I meant to talk about. And now we're here, and I mean to talk about it. And you would be mean to stop me. The first words spoken in the conversation, directly before Catherine digs her own grave a little more, are Catherine Foundling. The dark-skinned girl spoke amiably, her sing-song Mthethwa accent caressing the words. I just think that's lovely. Her sing-song Mthethwa accent caressing the words. Sometimes phrases like sing-song can be used in an exoticizing and othering way. But here it just seems like a fondness for the language to me. And I think that's, it's fun. Accents are fun. Catherine's appreciating it, even though she's about to die. Well, caressing the words. It's lovely. Okay. Right. Eris is so hot. Exactly. I was going to say, part of it's probably appreciating language, but you gotta admit to yourself that caressing the words would not have been the phrase Cat chose if this had been basically any other human alive. This is anything that Eris does is just so sexual, so sensual, and Cat just cannot get away from that. There's one person in the world who is canonically more attractive than Eris. Yeah, I'll stick with that phrasing. One person canonically more attractive, but she's still not as hot. Eris just has... Eris just has it, you know? But... To be in all of Catherine's attention. Right. What she doesn't have at this point in the conversation, though, we make it several lines of dialogue back and forth, and it's so weird that she hasn't once 
flirted with Kat, used a pet name, and I understand they're not there yet, but it just feels wrong, you know? You already tried to kill her. How much more intimacy do you need? Exactly. This isn't how these two talk. Kat spends all of her time pretending she's not absolutely in love with Eris, or, you know, whatever name she's holding on to at the time. And Eris responds by acting like she's way more in love with Kat than she actually is for most of the story. What's what's the big deal? That's how these two interact. It's wrong, but they're not doing that right now. They need to be absolutely disgusting at all points. Of course. They go back and forth a little bit. Again, not flirting. And Kat says something that is important in the context of a number of discussions we've had so far. She says, I was under the impression that your role and mine were supposed to be at odds. Which we specifically said, we wondered about this, whether or not they're always historically at odds. Right. And so it is good here that we have that they explicitly are, notably within the context of the Precy version of these names, I think. Notably uh, from the perspective of Catherine, who only has a limited window. Well, Eris does agree. And that's what's fascinating. Right. I, I do think this is interesting. I, For instance, if there had been a squire to the White Knight, I don't know that this rivalry would exist if there were somehow an Eris equivalent hero. I know this is getting a little off topic, but it seems like it's only specifically the squire within the context of Prace that this works, because I feel... Correct me if you disagree, but I feel as though Eris is a pretty explicitly Pracy name, given the roles it can transition into. The roles we know it to transition into. And I would agree. Right. The heritable naming conventions we see out West are things like the Shining Prince, which surely is a precursor to things like the Good King or the Pretender King or the uh, Exquisite Usurper or... You know, that kind of thing. We see names that stand to inherit, but much more along the lines of, hey, your son's the Kingfisher Prince. Uh, probably, probably about to get the Kingfisher throne after you. I think you mean the Prince, the Prince Fisher King. The Prince Fisher King. Hip Lord General. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's nice to see it confirmed what that exact situation was, that it is a specific rivalry. And it does make sense that in traditional Precy politics, the various inner circle names, you know, your chancellors, your black knights, your warlocks, your tyrants, not tyrants, your your dread emperor, all of these are working together and very, very at odds with each other. So it would make sense that they're uh, first step names. I, For instance, Eris, Squire, and I think we mentioned this before, it wouldn't surprise me if Apprentice was also at odds with these two if the apprentice had been if the apprentice's story was tied into theirs at all which clearly this one's not but it would make sense that all of those would be relatively if not hostile than antagonistic names so it, it's it's cool to see that you know explicitly named here grace is such a hotbed of violence and backstabbing with the exception of as you mentioned the current apprentice who is well adjusted and has a good life other than one childhood trauma and frankly even by modern irl standards one childhood trauma is not bad but can i i would also like to point out 
based on where Eris is from, I think Praise is also a hotbed of hot beds. But in addition to whatever you were just going for there, Praise is a hotbed of violence, and Eris tells us this when Kat threatens her, ooh, I've killed for this name, careful Eris. And she replies, I've killed for good theater seats, my dear. Here it begins. Chapter 14, Villain, page one, because this is a web serial in one page, paragraph something, the Soninke chuckled, my dear. Thank you for your diligent, accurate, and specific archival work there so that we can find this easily in the future. I'm hoping to transition to Blessed Archivist. <laughs> I wish you the best of luck. Sadly, it's not blessed that the archivist is. But we are... We, we see a number of paths forward for Kat in this chapter. Uh, you know, we're talking about where names can lead and where different relationships can lead. And Eris offers Kat a path that would... Not go forward. Pardon? Not to go forward. Yeah, it would, be a, it would be a path that would do some odd things to this story. Do you believe it? She offers Kat a ship right back to Lore. Which I had to check the map to see what kind of path that would be. And it's fun. They have to kind of go north and go to a fork in the river and go south again. But she claims to have a ship waiting. Do you believe this? And why? I don't know. I spent some time thinking about that. Whether or not this is a bluff or not. And Eris offers a couple different things, a couple different threats. And I think the level of truth to each of them is different. I believe this one, I think. And the reason for that is, what what's the play if there isn't? What is the play in offering this if there isn't a ship to get Cat with her guard down? She had that here right now, five minutes ago. To get Cat to walk away from Black, even just temporarily, and then realize, oh, this was a lie, and then come back. I don't. What's there's no benefit there to get Cat away from Black to kill hit her. I don't feel like she needs this kind of lie to do that. I, I just don't see the play here. Whereas if she wanted to kill Kat, she could try to do that again. But I don't think that's what she wants. I don't think that's the story she's trying to push for here. I think she wants the Squire to just not be here anymore. It forces Black to start over. It doesn't make an enemy of Black in the same way, which I think is important to Eris. There might be something off about a squireship gained through backstabbing as or not even through front stabbing as opposed to occupying a vacant one that stands against her intended goals with it right if she just murders cat black very well might say no thank you and who knows she may have some long game that involves cat even after doing this the person who took a name and then abandoned it might be a setup for some kind of thing that that uh eris wants to pursue i don't know we're not I don't know that we're fully clear on uh, Eris's name lore acumen at this point. She's definitely more aware than the average person, and she is trained. Certainly more, certainly more aware than the average person, and almost definitely more aware than even the average named by yes, her excellent education and also just who she is as a person. She is from the high seat of Wolof. Yeah, right. So. There, there could be that she's trying to manipulate a story with this. I don't know. I just I don't know what she stands to gain by making Cat walk over to a boat if there isn't one there, or if walking to a boat that where they're just going to like kill her on the boat or something. 
But our dear readers, if you can put together what story she's putting together, then put together an email and send it to us at thelongprice at gmail.com. Yeah, absolutely. Please do. I would love to hear theories about this and whether or not you think she's telling the truth on this or any of the other offers or threats she makes. There's a couple here, and I, I don't know. It's it's interesting to try to piece together exactly what her angle is on, on each of these steps. Like Eris, however, tragically, in fact, there's not so much a mystery as to Catherine's calculuses, and that must be embarrassing for her. She recognizes that she can't go back to Lore on some grounds or another, maybe embarrassment over having served the Empire. But she could sail down the Wasaliti until Mercantus and make her way into the Free Cities because, to quote Catherine, I'd be beyond the Empire's reach there, safe. And I just think it would be embarrassing if it turned out that malicious hands and deep pockets reached into Free Cities politics in an entrenched and near impossible to uproot way. That would be mortifying, if you asked me. If I were Catherine and I had these thoughts, I would be such a fool. To be fair, Cat has no way of knowing that or expecting that. But yeah, it's it's definitely it, it's definitely fun to be aware of it from the the reader perspective. Is it? I'm hard on Catherine. I mean, she, she deserves when she's when she's young, when she's just a baby in these early chapters. You got to be hard on her because later on, she's perfect and the best. It's an important exercise of my political stance that teenagers are not people. The next chunk of this chapter is sort of just threats going back and forth, mostly from Eris. She makes a threat about killing a bunch of orphans. What a monster. Right. And her main goal seems to be to have, I think this helps back up what I was saying and what you were sort of saying as well, that she specifically says that Kat needs to abandon her name. So it's, it's not about killing the squire. It's about leaving the role empty without, doing it yourself i guess and they there's this discussion trying to get her to do this cat eventually thanks eris for teaching her a lesson and this lesson seems to be cat can't beat the monsters by being better than them she has to beat them by being the bigger monster and a lot of cat's story revolves around that honestly we we see that a number of high marks in the drama of Kat's entire life are when she steps up into the role of the bigger monster. But it's a nice cycle, I guess. It's a, it's a nice thing that that is explicitly how she engages with Eris throughout the entire story. I mean, there's these threats about, oh, oh leave or I'll kill the orphans. And it winds up with, you know, a heart getting yoinked right through the chest and being worn as a artifact for a while. You 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 manage it, Cat. Nice job. Just kind of making that one up there. Hypothetical. It, okay, it just seemed a little nasty. No offense. This is a formative discussion. Catherine figures out a lot about herself and how she's choosing to be, and because of that, it foreshadows or if I may use more religious language, prefigures that which must eventually come. Eris threatens those orphans, which, by the way, what a stereotypically just 
throwaway evil move. Yeah, it's exquisite. It never, no matter what, does Eris lose the comic book evil flair of her people? And I'm grateful for it. But she threatens him. And Catherine's response is, if a single one of them dies, I will make a monument to ruin of you. All that has ever given you joy, I will turn to ashes. Everyone you've ever loved, I will break so thoroughly they die cursing your name. I will undo everything you've ever accomplished. Wipe the slate of your existence so clean there won't be a person alive that remembers you were ever born. I will take no pleasure in it, but I will do it. Well, let's count. The orphans may well not die. They may all die in Catherine's Wars later. I, I don't know what happens to the orphans. But Callowins die. And I think Catherine does make a monument to ruin of Aerith. Or sometime the mantle with her soul enshrined in it is a monument, so to speak, to ruin. What she does to her at the end, though, is a great monument and a testament to the ruination of all that Aerith was. Even though she in some ways is perfected by it, in some ways is empowered by it even, arguably. That is a ruination. That which has given her joy will be turned to ashes. I'm not sure. What has given her joy, would you say? Mm, mostly Cat, and she doesn't turn to ash. No, first she turns to ice, and then she turns to a limp. That has not given Aerith's joy at this point. Aerith's joys are in the acquisition and exercise of power, perhaps? The manipulation into a higher and higher position, the casting down of pretenders to equality with her, and she becomes trapped forever with an equal she can never checkmate, to use a term that might exist in Shatranj, but rather only battle to a draw time and again. Victories here, losses there. Everyone she's loved will break will be broken so thoroughly they die cursing her name. Well, we we, we see a lot of a lot of the high seats suffer as they should. I'm not going to make a big argument out of this, but hey, good job, Catherine. You made Sargon sad. Undo everything you've ever accomplished. She strives to undo the, uh, the whole affair that Diabolus gets going. And I think she fails there. She fails plainly to undo the damage done. But she succeeds in taking no pleasure in it, so good job, Kat. You're a sad girl. <laughs> well, there is that, at least, yeah. I, I mean, she... she does her best to follow through on this i would say i i think you're you're right i think she does a pretty cat does a pretty good job overall i think her biggest success is in turning ubla into somebody who's doing most of these things to herself by the end you said the name of course i did that's her name yes but it's the first mention of her name in the entire oh, podcast i guess you're probably right by the end of it She's doing these things to herself. Everything's giving her joy. They gave her joy is turning to ashes as her whole outlook changes. The people that she loved are broken thoroughly. Eh, the only person that I think we actually see her love is Kat, frankly, unless you count her parents, and that's questionable no. at best. And in a weird ruined anyway. In a weird pricey sort of love, maybe. But the only person she actually, in a like normal human way, loves is Kat uh undo what you accomplished yeah that's that's uh there's when so much of what uba does is kill people that one's a tough one to undo but uh turning her into a ghost is a very metaphorical way of saying people don't remember you were born i don't know there's like a having that ethereal nature to herself making her a 
an illusion, a spirit kind of works for that. I don't know. She even though she takes it into such stride, she really does. <laughs> and a monument of ruin. I mean, she does wear her heart as an artifact ish. But I really think the monument to uh to Eris's well to Uba's ruin is Lies itself, which is a little rough because it's also a monument to the ruin of the city, but you know. Here and there. We get pieces. Regardless though, it's I will say I will say this paragraph, you have to be a very specific sort of person to deliver this monologue with a straight face and be taken seriously, and Kat fully manages it. Eris is scared, and this is the kind of paragraph that if somebody in real life said something like this, you would think that they are completely unhinged and that there's no concern about them doing anything like this. And like this is such an edgelord thing to say, but Kat means that she will attempt it and is believed by the person she's talking to. Incredible. She's eventually Duchess of Moonless Nights, but right. here she proves herself to be Lady of the Edge. Exactly. <laughs> For all of her edgelordiness, she remains an utter fool. She bluffs confidence right into Eris's face when threatened, and in doing so, reveals something that I don't think Eris necessarily knew. Eris says, I could kill you here and now. And Catherine says, you could try, I corrected with a breathless laugh. Here I am, abandoned by my name, with only a knife to defend myself. You did not have to say that. Maybe she knew. She she has contact. She has ways. Maybe she can see your name. You don't know how anything works. But why do you say it, Catherine? That's just poor form. What er- would your dad think? Eris does know already. Uh, a couple lines back, she says... Uh, she says, I've come into the fullness of my name, Catherine. You're powerless and as good as unarmed. I think I think she's aware of the situation. You don't think that's just a jab? Uh, I mean, the fact that she says the fullness of my name, I think she knows there's something up with Kat's name, which makes sense. Kat could sense Eris. Maybe Eris can sense Kat, or maybe she can't right now or something, or not as well. Um, I don't know. I think she's aware that something's... Something's a little funky with Kat's name. Maybe she doesn't know the details. I agree, though. That it's just you're too young to have three. Too, you're too young in your name to have your aspects fully developed. Because we don't see Catherine get her all three of her aspects until you know never. That could very well be just meaning she has all of her aspects. Fair enough. It is regardless of the details. Fully admitting, yep, I don't have any power is not a good play. But she follows that up by. As I mentioned, you know, she that that monologue she gave is edge lordy, edge lady. But she follows it up with, "Look into my eyes, Eris. Do I look afraid to you? You've stacked the odds, but have you stacked them enough?" And this is such a I, I reading this. This is incredibly Catherine. It's a follow up to her previous speech. And I get flashes. The thing that always comes to my mind when Kat does things like this, I get flashes of the, the cataphract charge where she just draws a line in the dirt and stands there, basically no power left at all, smoking her pipe. And this wall of steel and horse and spear turns aside out of fear of Kat's reputation. She's cashing in on a reputation she doesn't have yet. She's going into, I don't know, reputational debt with this line and it works Eris Eris hesitates Eris is nervous I wish that weren't the case 
this is a wonderful book that's well written part blah 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 no attacks here don't get me wrong but i think it would be edifying if this were not in fact Eris being afraid which i do believe she is she plainly does not have the ability to school her expressions school her emotions to maintain the mask which she later is flawlessly able to maintain but rather if she were feigning her fear and allowing Catherine to win this encounter thereby setting up her later victory pulling a rule of three before we even know about it i think that'd be fun but ee knows best much like mother Gertel in the film tangled yeah i suppose i don't know that i disagree but i also don't know that i agree i i i do like this flash of who cat becomes but it would be interesting to see the name lore peeking its head up here for us to to look back on with delight i i can i i could go either way i'm i'm content with how it is but if it had been what you said i would have also been content after we finish this book i'll be curious to see what the yonder version does when we do our measured read of it our measured read yes after this catherine in the emptiness of her name to pervert a phrase of Eris's, straight shanks for guys and i recognize that perhaps she does not have access to her name but she's still named like in the earlier fight we saw between black and captain she maintained some basic supernatural ability even though she doesn't have access to anything actually magical but she's still two weeks into her weapons-based combat education and is armed only with a knife i'm wondering if she's perhaps mistaken in her assumption that learn didn't seem to apply to hand-to-hand combat perhaps her teachers were just so far and away ahead of her that it seemed like she wasn't making the same supernaturally charged progress because a teenage girl taking on four big guys with a crossbow no matter how good she is with only two weeks of real training plus the pit fights no matter how much reputation she's indebting herself into cashing in she's doing very well she is and i there are remnants, I'm sure, of that power, but also it is worth noting she maybe was going to lose this fight, actually. So there is that side of it. Very fair, but maybe it's still doing extremely well. I don't mean to reveal some of my secrets here, but I don't think, in my current degree of in practiceness, I could kill four guys armed with crossbows with a knife without at least a fair chance of sustaining serious injury. Crossbows and swords. Well, I'm not going to give them a chance to get their swords out. Smart. But she wins the fight with some tricky cat maneuvers and some brutality and some last-second help from Black, who's apparently been here for a while. You did already mention cat maneuvers. The brutality goes without saying. <laughs> Very fair. And as the as the fight ends, as the last person is, I believe, strangled to death by cat by Black's shadow powers uh cat delivers the line well internally i felt my name stir deep inside of me as i sheathed my knife and smiled a hard smile i wonder what specific thing it is here that her name liked was it the murdering the fight in general the decision the refusal of of eris was it that i mean honestly was it that black got involved in the fight and cat accepted that 
I, I don't know. There, there's a lot of things that happen here. I mean, it wasn't as simple as Kat's absolute fearlessness and just willingness to level absurd threats at people and back it up with nothing except <laughs> confidence. I mean, we talked about how she her, the threats at 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 Eris, which are big and cat like, but the last guy is standing at distance from her, aiming a crossbow at her, and she doesn't charge him. She doesn't do anything tricky. She stands still and says, "Pray you don't miss. You'll be dead before you get to reload." She, I, I don't know. There, this chapter, more so than the William fight or the training or anything like that, is. This is how Cat fights. This is how Cat wields her power. And it's fun to see. But And I'm wondering, is that what her mantle likes so much? Yes. Fair enough. No, also, I have to note, you'll be dead before you can reload. That is just how crossbows work. Yeah, that, that's just 100% how, what fighting with a crossbow means, yeah. A metal line, however. Possibly the second metalist of the chapter. I am in a generous mood. Would you care to remind our listenership how the chapter ends? Of course. Kat, is, Kat tells Black that she is ready to get back to work. And as she makes this decision, she thinks to herself, how can you justify working for these tyrants? The lone swordsman had asked. I finally had my answer. Justifications only matter to the just. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss a red letter. Red letters. And another red. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Girl Who Does Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Mysterious Celesta by Ashat Danielian, composer. No much destruction of all that lives, so why oh why did we give into hubris? was Nuclear Explosion by Unfa. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-r.
E. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. Receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make all of this possible. Special thanks to our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 15, Company. <laughs> <laughs>